Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thank you all for coming today. Um, special thanks, as always, to our conference staff. We do such a terrific job with all of our outstanding events here at Cato. Uh, and today, no exception. Welcome also to those of you who are watching online at Cato.org or listening on the Cato Events podcast after the fact. Um, so our topic today is forcible regime change operations. Why do US policymakers continue to contemplate initiating the use of force to remove a particular government from power despite the overwhelming evidence that such operations often fail? And you know, you plan these things out way weeks in advance. You just never can know. But as if on cue, just last week, Foreign Policy Online published an essay, essay by John Hanna calling for regime change in, wait for it, Iraq. Why? Because the person chosen by Iraq's democratically elected parliament to be the next prime minister was, in Hanna's estimation, quote, a dead end for Iraq and the United States alike, unquote. Hannah, by the way, is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which seems ironic, but I digress. Uh, the past uh, year has also witnessed talk of regime change in Venezuela, plus, of course, the perennial calls for regime change in North Korea and Iran. So this idea is very much alive and well. So I really wasn't in any great danger that we were not going to be talking about a uh, uh, you know, present topic. But a little background uh, about what brought us here. Uh, a couple years ago, Ben Dennison, our main speaker today, was collaborating on a conference paper, journal article, both with my colleague Emma Ashford, uh, and they asked me to take a look at it. And it occurred to me that a portion of this paper uh, might serve as a sort of useful overview of the academic consensus on regime change, sort of an extended literature review. And, and the point was that while uh, the academy, my scholars, were probably pretty familiar with this work. Um, too few in the policy community are, and that's, well, humbly, that's where Cato comes in, right? Because uh, we often will take uh, academic research that's being done outside of the Beltway and tr sort of introduce it on the inside. So, for example, just by coincidence, see uh, Richard Hanani has just published paper on the failure and indeed the immorality of sanctions policy, which is also informed by... Uh, extensive academic uh, liter research. So today we're talking about Ben's paper uh, that he uh, published with us uh, last month. The more things change, the more they stay the same, the failure of regime change operations. Uh, just a few of the highlights. The historical record illustrates that armed regime change missions rarely succeed regardless of the strategy utilized, and they often produce unintended consequences, such as humanitarian crises and weaker internal security within the targeted state. While it might be in the interest of American officials to promote democratic institutions around the world, using armed force to promote more favorable regimes is often detrimental to this end. Covert attempts at regime change through an intelligence operations and election interference are also sometimes favored, but they are even less likely to achieve their goals. And near the, near the end, Ben concludes, uh, 
foreign polities have different priorities than America, and changing the existing leadership is unlikely to alter those priorities to favor those of the United States. Accordingly, policymakers need to ascertain whether the cost of regime change missions would be worthwhile if meaningful policy change under the new regime does not occur. So that's what we're here to talk about. And yet, like I said, uh, policymakers in DC are continued to be drawn to these things. And um, I tell you, if I had a nickel for every single time I heard Germany and Japan mentioned in the same breath as Iraq and Afghanistan, Whew. Oh, and throw in the Marshall Plan just for good measure. Just toss, that, toss that in there. That's also part of it. Um, on the other hand, we can understand a desire on the part of policymakers and many Americans to want to help foreign peoples throw off the yoke of oppression and tyranny and no least of all places here at the Cato Institute, where we are, in fact, dedicated to the advancement of human liberty. And so, just by coincidence, I was sort of traveling down memory lane this past weekend. I came across the first magazine article that I wrote here at Cato nearly 17 years ago in the August 2003 issue of Reason Magazine, a symposium under the heading Forcing freedom, can liberalism be spread at gunpoint? Question mark. Well, the point is it can be, but other ways are more humane, more consistent with liberal principles, and more likely to actually endure, more likely to actually produce liberty and peace. So we should both understand the successes as well as the failures and understand what separates the former from the latter. So I want to thank Ben for writing this paper. I want to thank him for coming here to talk about it. Uh, he will speak first. Ben Dennison is a postdoctoral fellow with the Center for Strategic Studies at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. He earned his PhD from Notre Dame and uh, uh, degrees from Texas A&M and Clemson. Following Ben's remarks, we'll hear from Lindsay O'Rourke. Lindsay is assistant professor at Boston College and author of Covert Regime Change, America's Secret Cold War. If you, uh, this book was read very extensively. In fact, I broke it uh, uh, in the course of reading this book. I reviewed it for War on the Rocks. Uh, it is excellent. I highly recommend it. Uh, after Lindsay, we'll hear from Alexander Downs, who's an associate professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, my undergraduate alma mater. Uh, Alex, <laughs> Alex has written extensively on this topic, including an article with Jonathan Monton called Forced to be Free, which was widely cited. He's also co-written uh, articles and papers with Lindsay. But most exciting, uh, uh, just talking to him before we came up here, um, his book, Catastrophic Success, which is also on the topic of forcible regime change, uh, uh, is, we think, uh, a, a imminent from Cornell University Press. Uh, so congratulations to Alex. So with that, um, I will let Ben go first, and uh, then we'll hear from Lindsay and Alex. Thank you. All right. 
Well, thank you so much for everyone for being here today. And thank you, Chris, for inviting me to both be here and also write the paper. Thank you, Alex and Lindsay, for joining us today as well. Um, and I wanted to start today by noticing how many people are in the audience uh, to talk about this topic of regime change today uh, by reflecting on the first time I ever presented my research at a conference about regime change was in 2016, uh, where commentators in the audience stood up after I presented and told me that if, since the United States had learned its lesson in Iraq, there was no reason to study regime change anymore. We won't be interested in doing it. We've learned it's no longer going to be beneficial. And so the fact that we still see people calling today that we should re-regime change in Iraq uh, shows that this topic still is relevant and important to be discussed about. Um, so the United States has been involved in engaging in regime change operations, depending on how you count it, since at least 1898. Um, it's been a longstanding feature of American foreign policy. Um, but since the end of the Cold War, especially, there's been a focus uh, for regime change missions thinking about how the United States can try to promote democracy around the world to uh, better achieve their own its own national interests, as well as promoting more freedom around the world and achieve kind of the goals that it has for United States foreign policy. Um, in recent years, this has changed under the Trump administration. We see less focused on uh, a focus on democracy promotion. But instead, we see lots of speeches by the Trump administration mentioning sovereignty as the main feature uh, that the US foreign policy should per, uh, be pursuing. It should be the main feature of how we should think about the United States in world affairs. And yet, even when the Trump administration continues to talk about sovereignty uh, as a main feature of US foreign policy, there's still an odd tension where calls for regime change still exist, uh, even when focusing your foreign policy around this issue of sovereignty. And as such, even though we might wish that the United States may have learned its lesson in the past. Uh, the era of regime change is not nearly as over uh, as we all would like to think, and it still is important to focus on as a topic to see kind of what does the academic and historical record uh, show us for whether or not this is something the United States should be engaging in. So even with all this great research that's out there, um, even a focus on sovereignty in the Trump administration, there's still a belief in some corners of the policy world that regime change can be done if we use the right strategy we invest enough resources, and we do it properly. And it'll be a quick and easy way to get the policy change that we want. Um, and kind of given this kind of resounding uh, features of some of the policy discussions we see, some of the articles we see being written about um, whether or not we should still engage in regime change, uh, I think it's still an important topic to discuss about and one of the main reasons why I wanted to write this paper uh, for, for the Cato Institute. So kind of in that framework, uh, there are three main things I wanted to talk about in my remarks today. Uh, to try to open up discussion and get, uh, hopefully, hear what uh, Lindsay and Alex have to say as well. Uh, the first will be kind of just to summarize what does the academic literature and the historical track record say about regime change operations. Second, uh, given this academic and historical record, uh, why do we still see policymakers try to advocate for regime change? And what can we try to do to try to change uh, how we think about uh, regime change going forward to try to change these mindsets to make it less likely to be called for? And then finally, if there's enough time, maybe talk about a little bit about some of the contemporary cases that have been popping up over the last year, like Venezuela, to see how some of these uh, changes might play out. So the first thing, uh, the first topic I want to talk about simply is just the academic record of regime change. The most simple question you could ask if you're thinking about whether or not you want to engage in regime change around the world is, does regime change work? It's a very simple question. Uh, my kind of blunt answer would be, no, it doesn't work. Uh, the more nuanced answer uh, would be that it can work in very specific situations with very specific conditions, um, but today those conditions are very rare uh, to be achieved. 
And when you're looking at whether or not it's to be successful, uh, regime change can be successful, it's not simply about whether or not you can overthrow the government. The United States is actually pretty good um, if it puts its mind to it to actually overthrow a government if it wants to. Uh, the, the bigger issue to ask is, does the regime change mission actually achieve the political goal that the United States set out to achieve by overthrowing that government? And when you look at the uh, historical track record and uh, folks who have written about this, no matter what the political goal you're trying to achieve, um, very rarely does the United States actually achieve that goal. Whether it's for better interstate relations, how Alex and uh, Lindsay have written about, whether it's for better security outcomes, better humanitarian outcomes, better economic outcomes, or even promoting democracy, very rarely does the United States actually promote those political goals they sought for by uh, overthrowing the government and using forcible regime change operations. Uh, just to quickly talk about one of these, which has been uh, most talked about in uh, the academic literature, uh, democracy is actually one of the toughest goals to try to um, uh, use uh, to promote through forcible regime change operations. Um, and yet, the United States kept trying to uh, impose democracy uh, at gunpoint. And it's one of the toughest goals to achieve because there's an inherent tension uh, between the United States overthrowing a government and expecting the leader to respond to United States' foreign policy uh, prerogatives, as opposed to what their domestic constituents want them to actually uh, provide for them. We saw this a lot in Afghanistan uh, with, Armin Karzai, with uh, Armin Karzai, who the United States would get angry at him because he would start pursuing policies that the domestic Afghanistan's uh, population would want him to pursue, and that was against what the United States wanted Afghanistan to, uh, to pursue. And so this inherent tension makes it very difficult um, for democracy to be promoted by gunpoint uh, because you're always having to trade off what the local population wants versus uh, what the United States or the foreign intervener wants to achieve. Um, as Chris mentioned, uh, there is some focus in this literature by looking at uh, uh, the cases of Germany and Japan post-World War II, also South Korea and Italy and other uh, uh, World War II cases of regime change and nation-building operations. A lot of these arguments about these cases uh, says that um, they show that if you invest enough resources or if you have the right strategy, you can do regime change successfully. It's just that the failures are, have not had the amount of investment necessary to, in order to succeed. Um, the problem with this argument about investment is that the United States, I think in 2014, passed uh, the amount of spending in real dollars that we spent on, uh, on the Marshall Plan in Afghanistan. So if it really just took um, increased amount of resources, if we just need another Marshall Plan, Afghanistan would be a roaring success uh, today. Um, and really, if you look at these cases, as Alex has uh, shown, um, and some other uh, scholars have shown as well, there are two different conditions that make Germany and Japan the successful cases that people go to that is not talked about enough uh, when policymakers mention these as potential success cases. Uh, the first is just the pre-existing local institutional strength, which is kind of a wonky uh, academic term, I know. But this is really focusing on uh, kind of the strength of local bureaucracies uh, that are in the territory itself before the regime change mission takes place. So if you want to kind of overthrow a government and put a democracy in place, it's very useful to have a strong government bureaucracy you can build up upon, have a strong state in order to, you can keep the bureaucrats in power, they can keep collecting the taxes, um, you just need to put democracy on top of that. Um, so in both Germany and Japan, you had kind of for uh, almost too much, uh, too strong of a state. Uh, so once you were able to get rid of uh, fascism and the Japanese government, there was still kind of uh, nascent economic development and these government bureaucracies that you could build upon to allow for a successful regime change operation. Um, also, even more importantly, um, the presence of the Soviet Union 
was extremely important in both cases to kind of resolve this tension between what the United States wants for Germany and Japan and what the local populations themselves want for Germany and Japan. They, uh, because the looming threat of the Soviet Union, it allowed the Germans and the Japanese to realize that we should work with the United States, support this mission so we don't have the Soviets coming in uh, and telling us instead what we should be doing with our domestic uh, issues. Unfortunately, those two conditions, the presence of the looming Soviet Union and strong government bureaucracies um, are not present in most of the regime change operations we see throughout the rest of American history. And today, the cases that you see uh, in Venezuela, North Korea, Iran, the cases that Chris mentioned that are talked about, um, there's not these same, uh, the same amount of looming threat uh, that is present, and there's also not as strong as uh, government bureaucracies um, as in those two cases. So overall, no matter kind of what the goal is uh, for the regime change operation, I argue um, that kind of the academic literature largely shows that the conditions that would allow for success basically no longer exist, um, and it becomes very difficult to actually achieve any political goal that you may want through regime change. However, you could, make, you could make the point that if regime change is unlikely to succeed, but it didn't cost very much, uh, it still might be worth trying because you know, maybe you get a one in 10 shot at getting something right, but there's no clear long-term cost, so you might as well try for it. Unfortunately, uh, there's another strand of academic literature that has looked at what are the effects of these regime change operations and have found um, that there's lots of uh, short-term side effects that go along with regime change that promote um, high costs and bad human rights outcomes in these uh, countries. The most resounding uh, finding, um, which Alex has contributed to, is that the, when regime change operations take place, the probability that a civil war is going to break out in that country greatly increases. Um, there's, because of this higher probability of civil war, there's much more instability, uh, worse security in the country, um, and also uh, the human rights uh, situation gets much, much worse uh, because the government's trying to repress the rebels that are rising up, overthrowing the newly imposed government. Unfortunately, which some of my own research has shown, um, because of this instability that's uh, brought about by regime change, this can often lead to the United States having to engage in nation building even when it didn't want to do so in the first place because they think it's going to be a quick and easy mission, replace the leaders and leave, but once the civil war starts breaking out, they realize we really need to kind of stay, stay involved build up the government bureaucracy and be able to fight uh, the civil war in the country. We saw this most notably uh, after the United States helped overthrow Diem in South Vietnam, where the idea was we could just replace uh, Diem, get a new uh, leader in power, and that would allow the United States to get out of Vietnam quicker. Unfortunately, it ended up making the situation even worse in South Vietnam. It made the government even weaker, uh, and it led to greater Americanization of the Vietnam War and a nation building mission that came about. Uh, also, uh, that's something that's very uh, under-discussed in modern policy discussions because we're so uh, short-term focused in U.S. foreign policy is that uh, regime change also has very long-term effects on other aspects of U.S. foreign policy um, that we really don't know fully kind of all the effects it might have. If you look at discussions with China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, um, and they start talking about things such as support for NGOs in the country, humanitarian aid, uh, sanctions, uh, democracy promotion organizations, um, they all bring up in various points kind of the, uh, the threat of regime change as something that they're worried about, and they don't want support from uh, US foreign, other uh, tools of US foreign policy because they fear this is kind of the first step towards a regime change operation. Most notably, we see this in uh, nuclear arms control talks where uh, there's been increasing fears 
that because the US has a propensity to engage in regime change, it actually causes states to be less willing to have arms control negotiations with the United States, and in fact, are more likely to try to go uh, for the, uh, their own domestic nuclear, um, nuclear weapons. We saw this most notably with North Korea recently, where John Bolton mentioned that uh, the Libya model was something he wanted for uh, the North Korean arms control talks. Of course, the problem is the Libya model is Libya gave up its nuclear weapons program, and then decades later, uh, the United, or a decade later, uh, the United States uh, engaged in a regime change operation against Gaddafi. So putting this all together, we see that regime change rarely succeeds. It produces uh, these bad side effects, and it leads to the question, why do states or why do leaders and policymakers ever advocate for regime change given all these downsides? Um, for me, what it boils down to is this persistent belief that regime change will be quick and easy if done properly. That's kind of throughout uh, the policy world. And that while diplomacy can take a long time and they might produce outcomes that we don't like or they might pursue their own national interests, if we get someone in power that will um, have our own same interests, then we'll be able to very quickly uh, get the policy goals that we want. And I argue that it's actually, um, rather than it being quick, being able, uh, these regime change missions being quick and easy, um, it's actually very uncertain what the missions will look like once the missions actually are initiated. Um, in order to know whether or not the regime change mission will be successful, it'll be able to be quick and over easily, um, you'd have to know kind of how strong these local institutions on the ground are. You have to know kind of how much economic development is on the ground, what the military is gonna do after you depose the leadership in the country. And because it's very difficult to know what these institutions will look like uh, after you engage in regime change, it makes it very difficult um, for policymakers to be certain about um, what, how they should view regime change going forward. Uh, and so what I argue is that fundamentally, there are kind of two sets of policymakers and how they approach uh, uncertainty really matters. If you are someone who sees uncertainty and think you can control it, uh, then you're much more willing to advocate for regime change. Whereas if you're someone who doesn't think you can control uncertainty or um, you're much more willing to uh, try to avoid engaging in these regime change missions. And you can see kind of this uncertainty built up um, in this, uh, as discussed in the academic literature uh, through a variety of different means. The, uh, there's a large literature on psych, uh, political psychology that focuses on intervention decisions that argues that those who are most likely to advocate for regime change are the ones that are least likely to think about all the steps it would take to make the mission successful. Um, as such, the people who most likely advocate are the ones who are going to uh, spend the least amount of time trying to plan for the mission, engaging in phase four planning, um, and doing things of that nature. Um, there's also a large literature, uh, which will quickly plug uh, Melissa Willard Foster's new book that came out on this that focused on how local opposition movements have incentives to basically lie or uh, tell policymakers what they want to hear in order to get put into power. Um, this is really the kind of the case, the famous case of Ahmed Chalabi in Iraq, where he was willing to tell US policymakers what they wanted to hear, or most charitably, um, outdated information from when he left as an exile. Um, and these opposition movements have an incentive to basically distort the truth on the ground. Um, so it makes the policymakers think, oh, we have this group that's willing to be put in place. We can just put them in power very quickly, leave, and everything will be uh, quick and easy. So this assumption that regime change can be done quickly and easily uh, means that policymakers often don't ask the tough questions about what would come the day after, um, what are all the steps that we need, what happens if it doesn't go the way we uh, think it will go. So to change this mindset, um, I think going forward, 
the most important things that we need to do uh, is to kind of think about changing the mindset towards us assuming that all regime change operations are more likely to be failures than they are successes. And given that failure, uh, the question that policymakers need to ask is, if this regime change mission requires at least 10 years of military deployment, uh, multiple hundred billion dollars in investment, uh, is it still worth it to try? Because we see in this track record that the only way you might get success is through this kind of exorbitant uh, cost and investment. Um, and if you're thinking about this at the beginning, you'll be much more willing to say, is this worth it or not worth it going forward? We uh, also need to kind of change our mindsets about what foreign populations might uh, prefer. Um, they will have different national interests than the United States, and that's okay. We should find ways to use our tools of diplomacy rather than military force to try to interact with these different national interests. And we really need to think much more about is the short-term gains of removing leaders worth these longer-term uh, effects that are harming other, other tools of American foreign policy? If we are able to make one uh, new agreement after overthrowing a leader or overthrowing a regime, uh, is it worth all the other agreements we won't make because leaders will no longer trust uh, American uh, intentions going forward? So I argue in the paper that really uh, regime change then actually makes it harder for the United States to promote uh, democracy and human rights abroad because all the other tools that are associated with democracy get uh, wrapped up in discussions of regime change and ends up making it harder for the United States to advance the cause of uh, freedom and democracy around the world. Just to uh, quickly kind of tie up how I see this playing out in the current administration, uh, in the past year there's been a lot of discussions about regime change possibly happening uh, in Venezuela. Uh, you saw this with uh, the Trump administration bringing the opposition leader Guaido to the State of the Union address. Uh, they recognized him as the legitimate leader of Venezuela. Um, but to the Trump administration's credit, there has been no military attempt to overthrow the regime yet. Although there was the famous um, John Bolton notepad where he brought to a press conference that said 6,000 troops to Colombia that some took to mean as a veiled threat uh, to the Venezuelan regime. Um, in discussions about Venezuela over the past year, I've had um, some very interesting conversations where many people have said that the United States could uh, do a regime change mission in Venezuela. It could follow the same, uh, the same contours as the US regime change mission in Panama in 1989, which was a very quick and successful mission. Um, but you know, focusing so much on the one successful case in Panama kind of overlooks all the uncertainty that is there in Venezuela today. We don't know after overthrowing the regime what the military would do in Venezuela. Uh, we don't know how the, ec the economy would develop. We don't know where the former Maduro regime elements uh, would go in society. And um, we could try to think that we could control a lot of this escalation and a lot of these outcomes. Um, but we don't actually know if Guaido, even though he's told us he can, can actually control the full opposition movement and has a plan for how to move forward. And I think when you think through the Venezuela case, it shows how we really should be thinking about a lot of these regime change uh, policies going forward that all seem to focus on um, the naive belief that if we put the right person in power, we can achieve this very quickly, um, rather than thinking about what if this doesn't go right? What if this is going to take a long time? And is it really worth the investment in US blood and treasure um, for this mission? Uh, so in conclusion, uh, in this paper um, and in this talk, I've tried to highlight kind of the um, how there's still a continued um, advocacy for regime change operations throughout some factors of the US uh, foreign policy community. Um, but this really goes against the evidentiary record of how regime change operations usually go. Um, and really, what I argue is that we need to change the mindsets that focus on kind of the downsides to regime change 
rather than looking at kind of the only positive right cases that make us think it'll be easier to achieve than it actually will. Um, once again, this doesn't mean that the United States should be out of the business of democracy promotion and human rights promotion, but instead it says that we should not be using uh, military force for these, uh, for these missions. And in fact, using military force actually harms US democracy promotion efforts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris, uh, for inviting me and everybody at Cato for organizing the event. Um, everybody for coming today. It really is a pleasure to be here to talk about my research. Um, I want to just begin by commending Ben for writing such a clear and thoughtful policy analysis. Um, you know, I, I really thought you did a great job synthesizing the literature. And you know, more generally, I've had the, the pleasure of reading your work on a number of occasions um, at different conferences. And I've really been impressed by the breadth of your research agenda and the clarity of your writing. And so I just say you're a very promising scholar. And looking forward to seeing where your career is going. Um, so when we were thinking about giving comments, Alex and I decided to split our comments on uh, Ben's paper um, because my own research focuses on covert regime change, whereas Alex's focuses on overt. I'll talk a little bit about covert. He'll focus on overt. Um, we also decided that I'll talk more about the causes of regime change, and he'll talk about the consequences. Um, so I wanted to begin just by talking a little bit about the origins of my research so you can see where my, com my comments are coming from. Uh, so with the, the book that Chris showed earlier, the basic idea behind it was that I conducted a lot of archival research into US government declassified documents so that I could come up with a set of attempts, covert regime change attempts by the United States government during the Cold War. And from this research, which took a number of years, I came up with 64 cases of the United States attempting to covertly overthrow another country during the Cold War. Of these 64 cases, 25 times the US-backed forces assumed power, and the other 39 times they failed. Now, from this data set, um, I then uh, looked at the causes, conduct, and consequences of covert regime change and came up with a number of theories related to those topics. And while I'll be talking about the causes today, I just wanted to briefly note that uh, my research on the consequences second to everything that Ben said earlier. Um, I found with the covert cases that states that the United States attempted to covertly overthrow um, were more likely uh, to experience a civil war afterwards. They're more likely to experience an instance of government-led mass killing. They were less likely to be democratic. I also found that covert regime changes did not improve relations between the intervening and target state, whether this was measured in future conflict, trade, foreign policy portfolio similarities. So I came, you know, my overall picture when it came to the consequences of covert regime change was very grim. But um, today I'll be talking more about the causes. So Ben spoke about some of the cognitive biases that leaders can have um, that lead them to pursue regime changes. Um, this I, you know, false belief that they can have that's going to be a cheap and easy solution to their problem. Uh, well, he spoke about some of the irrational reasons. Um, I take a more rationalist approach to why leaders pursue these operations. Um, but I was also, you know, puzzled by the same question he asked, which is, if covert regime changes are so ineffective, which the research seemed to suggest that they are, why do states attempt them so often? One of the things that surprised me in my research was that I found that uh, throughout the Cold War, numerous presidents 
were concerned about launching covert regime changes. And so they repeatedly asked the CIA to evaluate the effectiveness of these operations. So Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, after the Cold War, George H.W. Bush, even Obama before going into Syria, asked the CIA to evaluate the overall effectiveness. And each time they came up with a report, the intelligence community said that these operations tend to not succeed, or they succeed in very uh, you know, marginal ways. And yet each of these presidents decided to continue to intervene, um, despite being warned about the low success rate, which raises the question of you know, why would they attempt to do this? So to answer this question, um, I take it a number of steps. The first step that I asked was the question of, what types of international disputes lead to regime change? What are the, the broad motives um, causing, the states, causing the United States to pursue covert regime change? And the first thing that I noticed um, was that, you know, in contrast to theories that the United States intervenes for economic or ideological humanitarian purposes, almost every dispute was of a security nature. The United States pursued covert regime changes for the same reasons that they tend to pursue war, which is to target a current military adversary, to prevent, um, a state from allying with another great power, or to prevent them to, from taking an action which may jeopardize their future, their security in the future, such as developing nuclear weapons. And of these types of security-oriented disputes, the next question I asked is, why regime change? Why pursue regime change as opposed to another foreign policy tool, such as sanctions or you know, an overt intervention, diplomacy, and so forth? And when I looked at the set of cases, I noticed a couple of things. The first thing I noticed is that it was almost always a big power differential between the United States and the target state, and that the target state was well aware of the United States' disagreement with them, which raised the question of why didn't the weaker target state just acquiesce to America's demands in the first place? And what I found was that the target states were unwilling to acquiesce to American demands in the first place because the nature of the security-oriented dispute really cut at their core national interest. You know, oftentimes the United States was asking them to do something that either would greatly sacrifice their security, such as forgoing a great power ally, giving up their nuclear weapons, or do something that would jeopardize their position domestically, such as renouncing their allegiance to communism or something like that. And because they had such strong uh, desires to, you know, support these policies, they were willing to, uh, to go against the United States, even though they understood that this increased the likelihood that the United States might target them for regime change. Now, given these types of you know, uh, chronic interstate disputes between the United States and the target government, American policymakers faced with this uh, dilemma, they discovered that regime change had a uniquely uh, transformative appeal. Unlike most foreign policies tools which aim to repeatedly coerce another state into doing your bidding, either through you know, a combination of sticks and carrots or brute force, regime change actually has this transformative appeal. If you can take the target government that has conflicting interests with you and replace it with somebody who wants the same thing as your own, in theory, you should be able to transform a foe into a friend. You can have a very conflictful relationship turned into a, you know, a cooperative one. In the best case scenario, you can have a reliable puppet who will do your bidding uh, for years to come. The problem is that despite this enormous appeal of regime change, it hardly ever works like that in practice. Um, I argue that transforming the security preferences of a regime uh, goes deeper than changing just the individual in power because states core national security uh, interests are formed by things that don't change. It's formed by their geographic position or you know, the existing domestic um, uh, coalitions. So 
despite this, uh, this, this appeal of regime change, it doesn't work. The next thing I asked when it came to regime change is, why did the United States intervene covertly? One of the interesting findings of my studies was that the United States attempted 10 times more covert regime changes as opposed to overt regime changes during the Cold War. 64 covert compared to six overt. And so I asked, you know, why were they more willing to intervene for covertly during these operations? And what I found was that American policymakers believed that covert operations were going to be so cheap that they were willing to try them even if they uh, were unlikely su to succeed. And the reason that they believed that covert regime changes in particular were so uh, low cost was because covert conduct lowers many of the costs associated with the regime change. It lowers military cost because the plausible deniability inherent in covert actions suggest that um, some foreign actors will be doing the heavy, heavy lifting of actually overthrowing the regime and presumably should take the blame if the operations fails. This means that the target state is less likely to retaliate against, retaliate against the United States and the conflict can remain more escalated or can be de-escalated. Covert interventions also lowered the economic cost associated with intervention. It simply costs you know, far fewer resources to try to overthrow a regime via assassination or coup than to put boots on the ground. Um, even you know, the most expensive covert regime change operation during the Cold War, the US support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during the 1980s, is estimated to cost about $6.6 .6 billion. But compare that to the overt cost of intervention in Afghanistan since 2001, which is now estimated to be in the trillions of dollars. Um, the final reason why policymakers preferred covert interventions is that they lowered the uh, reputational costs associated with intervention. Because the intervening state thought that its role in the operation would be shield, they were willing to do things that were hypocritical. They were willing to target allies. They were willing to overthrow democracies on at least six occasions during the Cold War. They were willing to support uh, leaders that committed human rights abuses. In the words of Henry Kissinger, covert action should not be confused with missionary work. And the combined effect of all these lower costs meant that American policymakers were willing to attempt a covert regime change, even if it was unlikely to succeed. You know, covert intervention allowed them to do something. And there was this chance that if it did work, you could have this transformative effect on the target state. But it just didn't work like that in practice. Um, unfortunately, um, when it comes to covert regime changes, there's a fundamental trade-off between size and secrecy. A covert regime change can only become so large before you know, the cover of the operation seems to be inevitably blown. Um, the more people who know about a covert intervention, the more people who will be privy to its details, people who might be open to espionage or blackmail. Um, and so it's very hard to keep a large-scale covert regime change operation a secret. But overthrowing a powerful state requires a powerful opposition. Um, and you just can't do this covertly. So when you look at covert regime changes, I found that they very seldom succeeded against powerful states. We very seldom overthrew a Soviet ally. Um, only 39% of my cases saw the US-backed forces come to power. And in 70% of my cases, I found that the cover was blown. At the time of the intervention, the target state accused the United States of trying to overthrow them publicly. Now, even looking at that 39% of the cases that were nominally successful and that the US-backed forces came to power, I found that they didn't result in the foreign policy objectives that American policymakers set for them. Um, those cases tend to fall in two categories. One category were states that the United States overthrew that were uh, much weaker than the United States, such as uh, Iran in 1953, Guatemala in 1954, and so forth, that although they initially appeared to be successful, because of the destabilizing effects and backlash to the covert regime change that came later, um, with a 
you know, a longer view of the intervention, the, their weaknesses and the blowback became more evident. The second type of nominally successful interventions were interventions where the United States intervened into a, a foreign election to support one party to win the election. Um, Post-World War II, the United States intervened in French, Italian, and Japanese elections to help center and right-wing parties win the elections. The idea was that this was one way to uh, eliminate socialist and communist threats as part of containment policy in the immediate, um, in the early Cold War. Now here I found that although these operations were nominally successful, these were the cases where the Americans' role was the most questionable about whether it was really necessary for them to intervene. The parties that the United States supported were already leading in the polls prior to the American intervention. These were also cases where the United States was doing major um, overt things at the same time to solidify these governments, such as Marshall Plan aid, the formation of NATO, military occupation. And so I found that in these cases, you know, uh, the covert intervention was almost superfluous into bringing about the result. So my conclusion is that the conditions that covert operations are most likely to seed is ultimately when they're needed the least. Either they can succeed against weak states of little geostrategic importance, or they succeed in these cases where the US-backed forces were likely to assume power. And given that they're you know, successful in the relatively limited uh, number of circumstances, I agree with Ben um, that you know, we should think twice about launching them um, and just overall be more skeptical about when they're likely to have a positive effect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Um, uh, my name is Alex Downs. I teach over at GW, across, sort of across town. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Cato Institute and, and Chris Preble for the invitation to come and, and speak to you today. I also want to thank uh, Ben for writing this paper. I've kind of been working on this uh, issue a long time now, and I'm hopefully coming towards wrapping up a big project, and it's good to see younger people, I never thought I'd say this in my life, younger people working on uh, these issues. Um, uh, it's also always good to see my, my good friend, Lindsay O'Rourke, uh, who, uh, what she didn't tell you is that she, in, uh, in a month or so, she'll be heading to the International Studies Association Conference to pick up the uh, best book award for her book uh, from the International Studies Association. So uh, it's a really good book, uh, and I highly recommend it. Um, what I want to do here is say a few things uh, about Ben's paper to start off, and then sort of delve into the consequences uh, part. Lindsay very nicely laid out the sort of division of labor here. Um, so I'll mainly talk about overt uh, regime changes, globally, worldwide, by all countries, not just the United States. Um, just to start off, though, on Ben's paper, I, I really obviously enjoyed reading it. I was glad to see it. It's really a, a nice, digestible, one-stop shopping for all of the sort of uh, problems uh, with regime change. Um, it highlights the problematic record um, of regime change, which tends to be ignored uh, when people write op-eds last week or when public figures talk about doing this. Um, there are some successes, right? I don't want to downplay that. But what sort of becomes evident from looking carefully uh, at the record is the, the sort of exacting conditions that need to be in place for, for successful outcomes. And those kind of conditions tend to get ignored 
when political leaders or others are making the case for regime change. Right? When, when you're making the case for regime change in Iraq or Afghanistan, I'm sorry, you simply can't make the Germany and Japan analogy. Uh, these are just very different kinds of cases, different kinds of conditions. I mean, I'm a political scientist, right? I love to generalize, but there are limits. Um, so you heard uh, some of the problems with regime change that, that, that Ben highlighted um, that I'm not going to talk as much about. Democratization being one that I've, I've worked on in the past. Turns out, actually, that democracies, including the United States, don't actually promote democracy that often. The majority of the time, they're putting in uh, autocratic leaders. Um, but when they do, it's about less than a quarter of a time that uh, 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 democracy actually takes root uh, in a country after a foreign-imposed regime change. And this, the successes are happening in the places where you'd expect that have the conditions of like high wealth, large levels of wealth, low levels of ethnic homo heterogeneity, uh, previous institutional strong institutions, uh, like Ben mentioned. Uh, with regard to trade, um, uh, I did a study where we looked at US regime changes in, the, in Latin America uh, and compared them to cases that did not have regime change and found that actually regime change reduced imports from and exports to the United States uh, in those countries. Um, and the reason is that Regime change is associated with a lot of turbulence, uh, and that can scare away uh, foreign business. I'd love to talk about the, the case of United Fruit Company in Guatemala. A lot of people think, oh, yes, this is an economically motivated regime change. It was about bananas, uh, and United Fruit was driving the train. Well, you know, a few weeks after, uh, after Arbenz was overthrown, uh, the United States government sued UFCO, United Fruit for antitrust and basically broke up the company and it lost all of its business in Guatemala. So if economics was, if UFCO was driving it, the government wasn't very uh, grateful. Um, lastly, just quickly on human rights. Um, Lindsay's book shows that countries that experience covert regime changes uh, uh, are much more likely to have a government mass killing uh, in the ensuing period. We have a joint paper where we look at this that has the same finding. We can't quite convince the reviewers, though, that uh, to, to accept this paper, but I assure you it's correct. Um, so for, for the rest of my remarks, I want to focus in on what I think are the common origins of several of the after effects of regime change. And these are sort of the I'm someone who studies war and conflict and violence. These are the kind of violent after effects of regimes change. One, being inside of countries, things like civil war and insurgency, and violent leader overthrow, and then conflict between the two countries afterwards, so between the intervener and the target. Do they have military, are they more or less likely to have militarized disputes? You, you would think if you put in a government that uh, you empowered because you think it uh, is going to be friendly to you, you would be less likely to be fighting with it. Um, and various other measures of how states get along. So just very quickly, just so we're all on the same page, right? Foreign imposed regime change, I'm going to stop using that term because it's very uh, unwieldy. I just say regime change, which is also better than FERC, which is the acronym, which can have some un... un uh, unappetizing uh, thoughts to mind. Um, it's really, it's the forcible or coerced removal of at least the leader, the effective leader of another state by the government of, of another, a different state. Right, so at a minimum, you're removing the leader. 
at maximum, you remove the leader and you replace the institutions of the country. So foreshadowing, that means there's going to be different kinds of regime changes. Well, the, what, this parlance that's become very common to say regime change, often people are just talking about changing leaders. It can also mean changing institutions. Um, and so we're talking about countries that were independent. There's not decolonization. They basically remain independent afterwards. They don't get annexed. Uh, and the outside power is primarily responsible for removing the government. So in my work, I look at the last 200 years, essentially. And there's about 120 uh, leaders that I code as being removed by external powers. This is worldwide by all countries, not just uh, the United States. Mostly they're overt. Uh, cases. I have a handful of, of covert regime changes in my collection. And they're successful cases, right? The leader was, in fact, removed, although I compare that to some a subsample of cases that didn't succeed. And so between uh, Lindsay and me, we kind of cover a lot of the waterfront. It's covert by the US, overt by everybody. And the fact that we're coming to similar conclusions at least sort of gives me some confidence that maybe we're onto something here. Um, so I'm sure you'll all be shocked to discover that the United States is the most uh, frequent intervener uh, over the past couple hundred years, uh, removing about 30 to 35 uh, foreign leaders, uh, followed by Russia, Britain, Germany, France. But I don't think anyone would have guessed number six would be Guatemala. Guatemala was the superpower of Central America in the 19th century, and they overthrew a lot of uh, their fellow Central American republics governments. Any guesses as to who the which state has, ha has experienced or suffered the most frequent, uh, the, most, uh, the most number of foreign imposed regime changes? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Nicaragua's close. That's Afghanistan is another one that's, that's, that's up there. They've had half a dozen. But the winner is, ding, 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 Honduras. Uh, and again, this is a lot at the, at the hands of its neighbors, Guatemala and El Salvador. Um, now, as I said, regime change at a minimum removes and replaces the leader, but at maximum also builds new institutions, right? So if you consider whether or not I'm going to build institutions, whether or not I'm going to put a replace, re restore a recently leader that was recently in power or put in a, a new leader, different leader, you get a sort of nice typology, right? So leadership, what I call leadership cases, are these ones that just replace leaders. Restoration restores previous leaders uh, to power. And institutional uh, are the kind that replace both leaders and institutions. The leadership type is the most common with about 60% of the cases. Um, not surprisingly, uh, it's, easy, it's easier and cheaper to do. Restoring previous regimes, about 20 to 25%, and institutional is a little less than 20% of those cases. So I'm not going to say very much about why regime change. Lindsay discussed some of this, Professor O'Rourke, I should say, uh, discussed some of this uh, before. But what, what's interesting and kind of ironic is that when you're talking about a policy that changes leaders, it's very rarely about any particular leader. Right? It's about something that they're doing or that the state is doing, some policy that they're enacting that uh, the, outs the other state uh, finds threatening or disapproves of. And it can sort of run the gamut. It can be economic, it can be ideological disagreements, territory, changes in the balance of power, um, things like this. And what they all kind of share in common is this, well, we just can't get this 
other state or leader to commit to the policy that we want them to do. Even if, they, even if we threaten them and they say they'll change, there's nothing to really sort of enforce that over time. So there's this kind of commitment problem, and we think that putting in a new leader or regime will change the preferences of that other state. It's not going to eliminate the commitment problem. You can't do that in this, in this case. But what you can do is sort of put somebody in with preferences similar to yours that's going to lower the likelihood that they'll follow unpalatable policies in the future. Um, and my work is kind of starts there. It says, OK, what could happen that might drive those countries apart or lead to conflict after uh, that happens, after the, the regime is replaced? And there's really two things that can go wrong. The first is what I call military disintegration. This is when you invade a foreign country, and rather than resisting in an organized manner, its military kind of falls apart. Um, and what this does is, rather than you know, fighting a series of battles and eventually an organized surrender, you get sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of armed men who disperse, sometimes into the mountains, sometimes across the border, sometimes into cities. And that's like instant insurgency. So if, for example, the leader escapes, he can go uh, and start organizing resistance, right? So Vietnam overthrows the Khmer Rouge in 1979. The, 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 the Khmer Rouge army falls apart. It flees to Western Cambodia and across the Thai border. And there's Pol Pot to reorganize things, right? And an instant resistance to, to Vietnamese regime change. Um, and so if the military disintegrates, right, this creates the, the, the possibility for in, really instant civil war, instant insurgency. Um, this is particularly likely in countries that uh, have been hollowed out by personalist dictators or where you, the invader, use a, a very highly aggressive kind of blitzkrieg strategy that's designed to blow up uh, the other side's military. So that's the first thing that can happen. And obviously, we saw that in Afghanistan. We saw that in Iraq. We saw that in Libya. Second thing that go wrong, can go wrong, excuse me, takes a little bit longer. And it's what I call the catch-22 uh, of regime change. Now, if you go read Joseph Heller's book, it's not exactly a catch-22, but it's kind of like a catch-22. What it really is is a problem of two masters, right? two competing principles, if you're familiar with the language of the lingo of principal agent theory. So regime change, I, I argue, sets up a principal agent problem. So you, the intervener, empower a leader in a foreign state that you think shares your preferences, right? you delegate Governance. You're going to say, you go you know, run Iraq the way we want it to be run, right, in our interests. Um, and there's a number of problems with principal agent relationships. One is adverse selection, right? You get somebody like Ahmad Chalabi who comes along and says, I'll do it. And you're like, mm, are you really going to be good at this? Carlos Castillo Armas, uh, I'm, I'm a good leader, not so much. Um, the other one is interest asymmetry, right? Another state has its own interests, as Ben mentioned. Uh, and those often don't change, right? So, uh, and what happens is you get two, uh, an imposed leader has to respond to two masters, right? There's you, the outsider, saying, do this, do that, follow my, follow my lead. And then there's your domestic audience. And those interests don't, there may be some overlap in some cases, and then there's, there's circumstances where that may be greater, but oftentimes it's not, there's often a gulf, right? Uh, and 
that is going to pull that leader. They're interested in their own political survival. Once you put them in power, they want to survive. So they're going to have to listen to their domestic audience. They also have to listen to you. So they're kind of stuck. right? And the more they go towards the domestic audience's preferences, the more the intervener is likely to come after them. The more they lean towards the intervener, the more domestic constituents are going to be unhappy. And so what you get is simultaneously the increased likelihood of internal resistance and external conflict. Right? That's sort of the implication uh, of my argument. Um, and so what I, what I find is that across these three, I look at three things, civil war, insurgency, the likelihood that the leader is overthrown violently, um, what is called irregular removal in the literature. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, that means getting shot in the head or, or killed or put in jail. Um, and then militarized disputes between the two countries. And what I find is that regime change increases the likelihood of all three of those things. But there's variation across the different regime change types. Right? The, the leadership ones are the, where the, the leaders are most vulnerable to this because they don't have a lot of domestic support. They're relying on the outsider. They're going to feel this, this dilemma is going to bite them hardest. Uh, restoring former leaders is going to be a better case because they often, you're, sometimes you're restoring democracies. This happened a lot after World War II, or you're restoring some kind of popular regime. They're going to have less problem. Institutional, building institutions is going to depend on whether the building the institution succeeds. And where is it going to succeed? It's going to succeed in the places where uh, they're, that are relatively wealthy, relatively homogeneous, that have the kinds of institutions to build on, right? Not uh, poor and heterogeneous countries. So just very quickly, um, uh, that's the, the sort of big overview of, of my, my findings in this book that will someday soon be published, I hope. There are about almost 50 civil wars after uh, within 10 years, within a decade of a regime change, um, uh, almost half of those happen in the cases where there's leadership uh, regime change uh, happening. Um, similarly, about half of all uh, foreign imposed leaders are overthrown violently uh, at some point in their tenure. Their tenure ends with a violent removal. Two thirds of the ones imposed by le in leadership regime changes are removed in that way. If you come to power in a regular way, I've, through elections generally or through hereditary succession, your chance of being overthrown violently is about 20%. So this is a very large uh, increase in your risk. Um, finally, uh, in work that I've done and in joint work with, with Lindsay, we found that uh, states that experience uh, regime change are more likely to have disputes, militarized disputes. Uh, spats, militarized spats with their, uh, with the regime changing country. And that that's also most likely to happen in these leadership cases. We've also looked at different kinds of, how can we measure like closeness, state affinity? Do they share the same alliance partners? Do they vote the same in the UN General Assembly? No, it doesn't, regime change doesn't help these things. So to wrap up, just to quickly summarize, so Restorations, these are pretty uh, unambitious, right? So Belgium, right, gets overthrown by the Germans in World War II. When, in the course of winning World War II, the United States and Britain bring back the Belgian regime. They, we don't really have to do anything to do that. They just come back from exile and they 
take over again. That's, that's, that can be uh, somewhat successful. Institutional regime changes, again, it depends mostly on the local conditions. Um, but, uh, and then, and then with, with leadership regime change, these are the ones that are likely to be most volatile. Where you see sometimes stability is where the leader is able to, sometimes with the outsider's help, repress. Repress, repress. So Francisco Franco, very successful, right? He was imposed partially by the Germans and the Italians. What does he do? As soon as he takes over, after the war is over, it kills 50,000 people, right? So if you're willing to do that, uh, and you have the institutional strength to do that, you can survive as a, as a foreign-imposed leader. Um, but most of the time, that's not the case, because the structures are weak, the leader doesn't have good control, and so forth. So just to get to this question of why. Um, so we know something about this now. We're getting a lot of data that suggests this is unsuccessful. Ben made some arguments in his paper and to you just now about, well, if we know all this, like, why, why would you want to keep doing this? And he sort of talks a bit, about, a bit about psychological reasons, psychological biases. Well, you focus on the benefits and discount the costs. Once you decide to do it, you become resistant to new information. You're overconfident. Um, you get bad information from your local agents, right? The, of course, the question is, why would you ever believe what the local agents tell you, given that they have an incentive to lie to get you to intervene in the first place? I would highlight a couple of additional ones. One is the political incentives to keep convince people that the costs are going to be low. So this, to me, before Iraq, was what was going on. The Bush administration wanted to do Iraq. They decided to do it. And they systematically downplayed the potential costs to persuade the public and our congressional institutions to go along with it. Um, just in closing, a couple of additional things. So one thing to keep in mind is, why has this been happening so much over time? Well, first of all, like interveners in the 19th century didn't have these kinds of studies that are starting to come out about the effects of regime change. And so it's hard to expect them to know what, every, what we're only learning now, right? So, um, so now we're sort of starting to figure this out. Um, in the early 19th century, there were a lot of restorations, you know, turning back Republican revolutions, right, in tiny little places like Parma and Baden, right? These were quite successful. Um, and so the, the impact of, of, of um, influential cases, right? So those, World War II, right? Everyone wants to talk about Germany and Japan. And then, um, what was the other one I wanted to mention? Oh, Iran. 1953, right? This, this was a seeming big success, and particularly uh, John Foster Dulles, right, who was Secretary of State at the time, they started talking about this new regime change model. He said, started purring like a cat, I think is the description. He's like, yes, we now have this tool we can use. And, you know, big shock. Next year, Guatemala, uh, and then Indonesia, and then on and on, right? This went on. So the, this sort of, perceived successes uh, can have a big influence on policymakers because they like to use analogies, right? So uh, the existence of those precedents, even if they turn out to later come back to bite you, as in some of those cases, um, shouldn't be uh, underestimated. But I think increasingly, right, people don't have this excuse anymore, right? We're learning more and more about the causes and effects of foreign-imposed regime change, and a lot of it is 
you know, a, not a happy story. So I think we need to be paying attention to that uh, and not trying to ignore it. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Um, I'm going to take my moderator's prerogative uh, to, I would, not to ask a question, but to make a comment. Um, as I'm sitting here, and of course I'm familiar with all their work and I've read it and, and taken it on board, but I'm, I'm sitting here and reminded that when we're talking about a foreign imposed regime change, in the context of the Cold War, we convinced ourselves in many cases, and in many cases it was true, that we were changing a foreign imposed regime. Um, and as much as I, and I, I want to really second the, the last point that Alex made, as much as we are now privy to many, many more cases than merely Japan and Germany, right, and, and the misuse of historical analogies is harder to justify when you do have before you, again, many covert cases that were kept secret for decades, right, but now we know the truth or we're starting to learn the truth. Um, however, as much as I value this work, I went back to John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill, over 140, 150 years ago, observed the difference between using force to overthrow, he justified, on rare occasions. He said it was justifiable, though not necessarily wise to use force to overthrow a foreign-imposed regime, but not to overthrow a regime indigenous to that place. Here's what he said. I wrote this in my book. Plug, peace, war, and liberty. Also quote Alex Downs in the book, among others. Um, this is what Mill said. If a people does not value liberty sufficiently to fight for it, and maintain it against any force which can be mustered within the country. It is only a question in how few years or months that people will be enslaved. Men become attached to that which they have long fought for and made sacrifices for, and a contest in which many have been called on to devote themselves for their country is a school in which they learn to value their country's interests above their own. Just for reference, we, this essay, of course, is pretty well known. We actually hosted a great discussion many years ago now, Michael Doyle, on this same essay. Um, but we made available at the libertarianism.org website uh, Mill's uh, essay, A Few Words on Intervention. So I, uh, non-intervention, I encourage you to take a look at it. So with that, enough from me. Um, we have a few minutes. Please wait for the microphone uh, to ask your questions. Um, that's benefit of people, especially watching online or listening after the fact. Um, uh, if you have, uh, uh, announce your name and affiliation. If you have one, I assume you do have a name, but you may or may not have an affiliation. That's up to you. Um, and lastly, uh, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. So please phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, and we will uh, set out those ground rules. And along the back uh, aisle there, please, and I'll, I'll bumble two questions at a time. So right there, sir, at the back. And then Olivia over here, right here, this gentleman right there. Thank you. Yes, sir, go ahead. Thanks for the excellent presentations. My name is Joe Bosco. I was at the Defense Department. My question is whether any of you have looked at the cases where there should have been or could have been regime change, but it was abandoned or not tried at all. 
the two cases in particular I'm thinking about are North Korea and the Korean War, 1950 to 53, and then of course George H.W. Bush's first uh, attack against Saddam Hussein. In both cases, we did not go for regime change, and we've been paying a price ever since. Okay, thank you. Anyone want to take that one? Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, go. I'm just made, yeah, go ahead and answer the question. I'm just going to stagger the mics because so there's a gentleman right there, Olivia, right there. He goes next, and there's a gentleman right there on the aisle. Go ahead, Ben. So I'll just say uh, quickly um, on the question, uh, North Korea. Um, I haven't looked at the North Korean case, but just from my own you know knowledge, you know, I'm, I'm uncertain whether or not the Chinese would have uh, been willing for the United States, you know, to uh, engage in regime change in North Korea uh, at that time, and kind of what this the whether or not we'd be willing to work. Uh, risk of World War III, but maybe my uh, co-panelists can answer that question better. Um, on Iraq, actually, um, I would argue that instead the, the Bush administration appropriately did not go for uh, regime change in Iraq at the time in uh, 1991 uh, during the Gulf War. Um, we've seen you know, there was no, there's no evidence that we would have been able to do it more successfully then than we could have done it now uh, than we did in two, 2003, in my opinion. Um, there still would have been the same problems with uh, trying to rebuild a, a new, uh, new institutions on the ground. I'm not sure that the belief that we could just replace, replace the leadership and then get out quickly would have been any uh, more true uh, in 1991. Um, I haven't looked at it, you know, in depth about whether or not, you know, we should, you know, looking at kind of the policy documents that were being written then. Um, but the only thing that maybe has changed a little bit uh, in that time period is there is evidence that the sanctions policy that happened after. Um, during the 1990s actually helped hollow out the uh, Baathist institutions a little bit more uh, than they were in the early 1990s, and it made it even a weaker institutions in the country. So maybe in that case, there could have been something slightly different, um, but I think stopping at the border was the appropriate uh, place, in my own opinion. Okay, thank you. Go ahead, Alex. Um, right, it's an excellent question, and I'm, I'm not uh, answering it in a way to deny that there might not be cases where uh, you would where regime change maybe should have happened. Um, North Korea is in the, in the Korean War is not one of them because um, we, the United States actually escalated its war objectives to, uh, uh, to seek to obtain a unified and democratic uh, Korea. Um, and that's in large part uh, what brought China into the war. Uh, so that one, we, we tried that one uh, and we, discovered the consequences. And then once China was in, obviously continuing to seek an objective like that was, was kind of out of the question. For Iraq in 91, I mean, I'm not persuaded why, it would, why, the, uh, why the consequence would have been different than uh, it was in 2003. Um, I mean, there's, people give all the, the, oh, our allies would have abandoned us, the mandate was just to kick Saddam out of Kuwait and so on, but I think you probably would have been stuck with a lot of the same uh, consequences that you ended up with a dozen years later. Thank you. Uh, yes, sir, go ahead. Uh, Professor Downs, uh, many of the elements that you mentioned regarding uh, the downside of regime change, uh, uh, we're seeing that happening uh, sort of live in the uh, conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I just like, uh, like to hear uh, your comments or other uh, panelists' comments on um, where would this go? Uh, here we're seeing a live picture rather than looking at uh, historical evidence. Thank you. Oh, I'm Aguetz, Mitre Corporation, retired. I guess I'll say a couple, a couple words about that. So, um, 
you know, you never want to, <laughs> on the one hand, you never want to, you know, uh, miss an opportunity for your adversary to get bogged down. Um, and so, you know, just as the Soviet Union was delighted to see us uh, tromping around Viet South Vietnam uh, for a decade, and we were delighted to see them tromping around Afghanistan for a decade in the 1980s, um, uh, I'm sure in, a, in some sense we'd be delighted to see them try and overthrow the government of Ukraine and try and, and uh, occupy a very large country uh, with a large population. Um, I, that would be, you know, the, the Crimea thing is separate because they simply annexed Crimea. It wasn't, wasn't really a regime change. They said, oh, we're, we're taking it and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I, of course, I would rather not see that happen because it would involve a lot of uh, death and destruction and suffering for a lot of people. Um, but uh, I don't see the, the uh, Russians trying to do that overtly anyway. I mean, they, I'm sure, and Lindsay could probably speak to this, probably doing a lot. They've They've done you know, various cyber attacks against Ukraine, shut off the lights a couple times, trying to intimidate them into towing the line, um, but more or less successfully. It's not clear it's going to be but successful. Actually, that's a good point. Lindsay, your, most of your research focuses on US covert regime change, and we presume that attempts by other countries are less apparent to us, right? Is that part of the reason why? What do you know from what you've looked at in terms of other countries' covert? Whereas, again, Alex's work is focused on other countries' overt, which are obviously more easily uh, perceived. Yes, I, spoke, I focused on American interventions because uh, for data reasons. Right. Only the United States do you have the declassified documents that you could actually prove that this was, in fact, a covert regime change. Um, but in my research, <clears throat> I, of course, came across many cases where the Soviets were on the opposite side, doing very similar sort of mirror interventions, uh, supporting the other side. And in many of our covert interventions, we were doing it alongside often the British. Um, and, you know, uh, I found that both the Soviets and the British uh, tended to do it for similar reasons, security-oriented reasons, with also similar levels of success. Similar. Uh, yes, sir, right there on the, on the aisle, and then there's one someone right behind you. Olivia, why don't you come over to this side? Go ahead, sir. Okay. <clears throat> My name is Aula from the Indonesian Embassy. Uh, you, Alex, you mentioned about the, uh, the United States is the most frequent intervener uh, of this uh, on this issue. Uh, questions uh, from that, uh, from your analysis, uh, talking about the the main cause of the interventions, how many in how many percentage is the economic factor becoming one of the uh, the main cause of the interventions? Second questions, um, talking about the future. Uh, with the the fact that the uh, the advancement of the technology uh, information technology and also the engagement of the people in much more uh, intense in terms of the policy making uh, the policy making process what is the likelihood of the future intervention that can be happening in the future thank you okay two good questions well, uh, how much is this driven by economics and how how does social media change and sir right behind there's a gentleman right behind who wants to ask a question so he'll go next go ahead uh, thanks for the questions. Both both really interesting. Uh, I would say uh, economic interventions, uh, uh, interven FERC's being, excuse me, regime change is being driven by uh, economic motives close to zero. Um, I think uh, the British, for example, were very uh, upset about their, their oil facilities being nationalized in Iran. Right? But ultimately, they couldn't do anything about it. They tried to enlist the United States for this reason. We weren't really interested until they started talking about, oh, the, the two-day party, those communists, right, and uh, the, the possibility of, of uh, a, a communist takeover in Iran. Similarly, and Lindsay, you should speak to this as well, uh, the most common cases where this gets talked about is the U.S. cases in Latin America. Um, 
and I just don't see it. I see, if anything, the, the government using the corporations, and but they're happy to take, say, donations sometimes in the Chile case uh, from, foreign, from foreign companies to help them. Uh, sometimes companies offer money. Um, but the Guatemala case I talked about, right, this was, I think, what, what happened there was that UFCO raised the flag that got the attention of policymakers who then acted for very different reasons, not to protect the company, uh, but to, because of their perception of the possibility of, of communism spreading. Actually, Lindsay, why don't you address that? Because you, you, uh, you lumped the Latin American cases into what you call hegemonic regime change as opposed to the other type. Maybe you can explain that a little bit briefly. Yes. Um, so I found a similar things to, to Alex. I found there was only a handful of cases where you could plausibly claim that it was for uh, economic reasons. But even when you looked at the details of those cases, like Guatemala, like Iran, like Chile, you still found that security uh, operation or security interests were more salient. One type of... Uh, so in my study, I have three different types of motives, um, offensive, preventive, and hegemonic. And the third type of interventions, which I called hegemonic interventions by the United States, were interventions within the Western Hemisphere um, in order to support regimes that were uh, pro-American. And I argue that this is part of America's you know, broader strategic goal of being a regional hegemon in the Western Hemisphere, because being a regional hegemon has a number of security, economic, and political benefits. Um, so there was, you know, some economic benefits there. But if you look at the specific cases for intervention, again, I just found that the security interests were always more dominant. What about for all three of you, the question, the, sec the gentleman's second question about social media. Does social media make this difficult problem even harder? Is it even now harder? Is that the way, am I rephrasing that question correctly? Ben, why don't you take that first? Um, so I would say the, the biggest thing with social media um, would be that the cost, I guess, for doing these kind of interventions through social media and through is going down. So it, if uh, what Lindsay has found with her work that um, the reason why you would engage in covert regime change is because, well, it's so cheap that you might as well try it, um, it actually encourages now more actors to, around the world to be willing to attempt uh, to influence these populations through social media because the cost is seen as so low that you might, and the benefits might be so high, so you might as well try it. So um, that's kind of what I see is that with the more connectedness, um, it might not be any more successful, it'll probably be not successful at all, but it just the, the perceived costs are going down uh, and that will make it possibly uh, more willing to try. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, th I think the Soviets would be jealous of the Russians' ability to meddle in elections today. I mean, uh, social media is just like a propaganda resource like none other. I mean, uh, they estimate that on uh, election day alone in 2016, 10 million Americans saw uh, Russian propaganda, <clears throat> which w is a remarkable fact, um, just allows them to escalate, disseminate these messages much easier. Um, it also allows them to do things like quickly launder money. The barriers of entry for being a news organization is much lower which makes uh, propaganda easier. So it just overall facilitates. Yeah, I mean, in the Cold War, the CIA actually had to buy or co-opt or create from scratch fake news organizations yeah. in order to do a lot of their propaganda. Now, uh, now Russians can just buy Facebook ads. For <laughs> Although the other point is, from a transparency perspective, right, the social media was seen to make, but as Lindsay's research and others has also shown, these didn't, uh, remain hidden in many cases anyway. So, so the, the transparency problem is, is, yes, maybe it's more likely to be revealed. And again, we're talking about Russian interference less than three years when we were talking about it all, you know, within a few months of it happening, whereas in the case of, of Iran in 53 or Guatemala in 54, we didn't find about the, uh, out about those until many years later. Uh, but, but many of these covert interventions um, 
were not kept covert. They were ultimately uh, uh, revealed uh, to, to the public. Do you have anything to add to this? Alex? Sure, I think we should uh, bring up the work of Dov Levin here, right. who's, uh, I'm not sure where he's based. Do you know? Was he Hong Pittsburgh? Kong. Uh, no, he's Hong at um, Hong Kong University. Hong Kong University, Hong Kong University who's uh, published a couple things on um, uh, basically uh, election intervention, election yeah. interference. Yeah. Uh, Propaganda, other other means of influencing electorates, and he's found that um, it can be it tends to increase the likelihood that the side you're intervening on wins the election, but it also is deleterious consequences for democracy uh, long term. So I think agree with what's been said. It, it's become easier to insert your voice uh, into elections. Uh, I don't agree, however, that say disseminating messages to people over social media, you should rise up against your government, uh, we'll be there for you. I think that's just a recipe for to get people killed because governments have plenty of repressive power. Right, uh, right behind, yes sir, go ahead. Oh no, right there sir, yeah, go ahead, you, yep. Hi, thanks, uh, my name's Pete Helzer, I'm a student at the Army War College. Uh, my question is for anybody, but uh, Professor O'Rourke brought it up. Uh, the gap between the policy analysis and the intelligence community analysis on these regime changes, is that a feature or a bug? <laughs> Good question. You want to take that, Lindsay? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the things <clears throat> that my work found was that uh, actually in many cases, my work paints a more sympathetic view of the CIA than a lot of popular works on the CIA. I found in many cases the CIA analysts who were more familiar with the target country and actually knew what policymakers were suggesting were often saying, like, no, 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 this is... You, you should know what we're doing. Um, but it was often executive branch policymakers that overruled the CIA, um, that ruled, uh, overruled uh, analysts who had more information on the country. Um, yeah, which just raises the question of how they can more effectively. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I, I honestly have been baffled why um, there wasn't more institutional learning. And I don't have a great answer for that. Um, uh, I, I, uh, yes, sir, go ahead. I'm mindful of the fact that I have not called on anyone on this side of the room. And if you wish to ask a question, I'm not excluding you. But if I don't see any hands, then we'll just stick to this side of the room. Okay, go ahead, sir. Yeah. You had your chance, all of you. Yeah. Yes, sir. You guys speak as if the United States isn't learning from all these experiences. I think you are absolutely wrong. Yeah. I think your uh, uh, data and is has given us way much more knowledge. And let me tell you the problem that we faced under that system that you are talking about. Presidents are only around for four years. Mm -hmm. Then there's a new president who has new ideas, and he comes in. What has happened since? Look at China. I'll surprise you. We are still involved in China's re-education. China is learning from the United States because they come over here. That was one of the things we never, when, when you talk about leaders, you talk about what was there then. They didn't so, have the education. They didn't go back to school. But we have learned that what you do is you re-educate them. You send them over to the United States. That's what we did in China. So part and of this still do. So part of this question, this sounds a little bit like the question that you got in 2016. Ben. Yeah. So, so I we commissioned this paper for a reason because we felt like the research that Alex and Lindsay and many others had done was not widely disseminated. It's four years after you gave that talk. Um, 
are are things better? Is, is are we learning? Yeah. He thinks we are. He he is adamant that we are learning. I can attest to it. Okay. Well, all of you, all of we 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 call this here. I'm I'm a historian, so but the social. We call this a selection bias. Okay, you all are much smarter than than ever. Anyway, go ahead, Ben. So I think actually this uh, the past question uh, and then this question also kind of linked together as well. I do think. Um, you were correct in that, like during one presidency, one presidency, there is some learning. You do see the case where it's often um, early in the president. I think you know I haven't looked at this systematically, but just you know anecdotally going through these in my head, it is kind of early in the presidencies that we see most of um, the regime change missions that happen. And then you even had uh, President Obama and when he gave, I think. It was, I think it was to the Atlantic, but it was like an exit interview, essentially. Right, to the Atlantic. Saying, right, like, yeah. you know, what did I learn? The, book, the biggest lesson I learned was from Libya, like, you know, have a plan for the day after. And um, so there is some learning that goes on. Um, and oftentimes that's uh, because, unfortunately, when we get involved in these uh, large-scale regime change wars, we build up an intelligence apparatus for that country uh, that gets deployed. And then after the war ends, we actually then destroy that apparatus and have to rebuild it again. So sure. for an Iraq, you know, we... Basically, we built up this actually really good assessment apparatus in the country, uh, and then in 2011, we destroyed it, and then when we needed to go back for ISIS, we had to rebuild the intelligence apparatus. So there's kind of a, also a policy intelligence gap where we do learn things, but then we forget the things that we learn, and we have to relearn them. Mm -hmm. So I think there is some learning kind of during the presidency itself, um, but then because of short-term horizons and things of that nature, a lot of this learning gets uh, lost. Okay. Uh, sir, right there on the, on the aisle. And then... Uh Olivia, why don't you help that gentleman right there, sir, right there? Go ahead, sir. David Sobelson, Washington, D.C. Should we see Russian intervention in the 2016 U.S. presidential election as a successful example of regime change? <laughs> no one wants to take that one? <laughs> That's not a sensitive topic at all. <clears throat> I, mean, I, I do think with, uh, in Dobbs' data set, maybe I'm wrong, I think uh, it's definitely a successful case of electoral interference. Right. Now you're getting into the, the tricky political science world of you know, what the definition of is is, and uh, you know, <laughs> we like to, how we measure things. So I think it wouldn't count in kind of, at least, um, at least for what Alex and I look at often, um, because there's no militarized component to it. So I'm mostly interested in kind of using military force uh, to provoke regime change, um, but maybe others think differently. Well, and Lindsay, your case specifically considers non, you know, the covert cases are not all military in nature. In fact, most of them are not military in nature, right? Yeah. Um, I think in terms of your question, there's the question of whether the election would have been differently had Russia not intervened. And unfortunately, I just think it's impossible to say. Of course, it came down to 77,000 votes in three, country, in three states. And you can make a case that Russian intervention was just enough to tip the scales I don't think we'll ever have enough evidence to say one way or the other. Um, but in terms of broader goals, in terms of sowing confusion and delegitimizing um, American democracy, I think they have been successful. And I would imagine that the Russians will continue to uh, meddle in future elections. I, I would definitely yeah. second that second point. I, I agree with, with what Lindsay said. I mean, it's, it's gonna be very hard to figure it out, um, but you could think about like, well, what would you need to know to answer this question? Well, you need to know sort of what, what were the messages that were being put out there? Who saw particular ads? Um, who did those messages influence? Lindsay just said 10 million people saw these, these ads on, on election day. Um, uh, it's, then it's gonna be, it would be a very difficult evidentiary task to sort out 
uh, well did that you know, tip the scales in, in particular places, right? So you'd have to know a lot. What we do know is, is that it wasn't good um, and that it may have. I wanted to, to go back to the previous question, if you don't mind, this question about learning that, that you asked, sir. Um, I totally agree with what, what you're saying, that, they're, that, that executives come in and they change. You get a new president. They have new beliefs, new analogies, new things they want to do. Um, uh, and that maybe there's learning going on below that level, maybe in the bureaucracy. Um, but I'm sort of pessimistic about that um, because, uh, you know, you look at Obama. Oh, well, Obama learned, you know, about, uh, about Libya and that, well, he really should have planned for the day after. Well, where did he, you know, how did he get his idea about doing Libya the way he did in the first place? Well, he learned from Iraq and Afghanistan that you shouldn't go in heavy because that's going to inspire an insurgency. So we'll go with light footprint this time. And, and we think it's a matter of technique, right? If we can just, and this is, you know, we're very, Americans are very can-do people. We think if we just find the right levers and dials that we can push, uh, we can say, oh, we learned how not to do it. If we do it differently this time, we'll get a different outcome. But what we tend to neglect is the forces on the ground and the things about the country that we can't change so easily that can frustrate. And I'm not saying it's impossible, right, to, to come up with these, these techniques uh, and learn something about what to do and what not to do. But you also have to take into account the conditions that you're dealing with. Okay, last question, sir. Go ahead. Thank you. So uh, I'm Stanislas Benoit from the French uh, Embassy. I was wondering if uh, regime uh, changing operations are to be avoided. What are the best alternatives in, uh, for regimes like uh, Venezuela, North Korea, and so on to defend both U.S. interests and values such as freedom, democracy, and so on? Thank very you. Good. Anyone want to take that? Because I will. Yeah. I'll just say very quickly in Venezuela, um, it's kind of... I'm you wrote about this in the Post, yeah. he, right? You had a yep. piece in the... Yeah. So I think it's politically unpalatable today, but I think like, the best thing you could do for Venezuela is would be to provide um, maximum amount of you know, support for uh, emig uh, immigrants that are leaving the country and refugees that are leaving the country um, and try to you know, support, uh, not hold, over threatening, uh, hold uh, sanctions as a threat over top of them, but instead try to support with humanitarian aid in that way um, rather than kind of keeping the military threat at its uh, heart. The problem is, I think, for me, uh, in both those cases, the long track record of American regime change attempts, um, given comments that were made about North Korea by many uh, policymakers throughout the decades, um, at least uh, the Venezuelans themselves think that the, uh, there was a covert attempt at regime change in 2002. Um, you know, whether or not the veracity, is, they think that's true. Um, so given you know, those, those previous track record, it's hard to see um, any step that, of US foreign policy that they will be able to see as uh, not with the regime change intent behind it. And you saw this in Venezuela when there was convoys of humanitarian aid trying to come, and they blocked it because they thought it was um, from, you know, this was kind of like the Trojan horse to get the regime change going in the country. And until you kind of swear off regime change, you can prove that you're not going to engage in regime change abroad, uh, only then can those uh, other types of foreign policy be successful. Yeah, let me close on that point because I think it's a good, it's a good place to stop. Um, among the many tragedies that these three have documented associated with regime change, the harms are often felt by the people, much more so by the people in these countries than by Americans, right? Um, and yet, uh, one of the other, the other collateral harm is to undermine the principles of liberalism in the first place, classical liberalism, liberty as we define it here in the United States. And by undermining those values, because they are associated fairly or not with subversion and coercion and the use of force, that is 
add that tragedy to all the other harms. Uh, and so again, I have much more confidence in the spread of liberal ideas through peaceful means uh, not in a non-coercive way, and my great, uh, one of the great tragedies is these have, those principles have been undermined by what has occurred over the last quarter century or so. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us. Please join me in a round of applause for our participants today. Um, <clears throat>